This series comes with a content note for anyone who has been through abuse or knows someone who has. Statistically, that is a lot of us. Some of what you'll hear in this podcast is distressing. Although we know it's important to hear directly from victim survivors about what they've been through, this content may be confronting and won't be suitable for everyone. Please check the show notes for phone numbers you can contact to receive confidential support. There's No Place Like Home is a Future Women podcast in collaboration with our proud partner, Commonwealth Bank, supporting long-term financial independence for victim survivors through ComBank Next Chapter. We acknowledge that we produce this series on what always has been and always will be Aboriginal land. All I remember saying is with my hands up going, please, I love you, I love you, calm down, I love you, it's me, calm down. Domestic violence cases have surged in Sydney. A husband accused of stabbing his wife. In a shocking domestic violence attack. Domestic violence is a national crisis. We've had an absolute tragedy occur here tonight. My name's Tharang Chafla. I'm a writer, lawyer and anti-violence advocate. I'm also the host of There's No Place Like Home, a podcast about family violence that puts the voices of survivors at the centre of the story. Today, I'll introduce you to Laura. But of course, Laura's not her real name. Laura's smart, funny and resilient. When her friendly face pops up on Zoom, you would never guess that she's a woman who sleeps in a bedroom that doubles as a panic room or that her entire house has been lined with CCTV cameras. She's safe now, happy, but her home is littered with the memories of what was done to her. Some years ago, Laura moved to a new city got a new job, and eventually she fell in love. She had a purely professional relationship with her older male boss, let's call him Michael, for a full two years before they became romantically involved. Never during that time did I I see any direct red flags. I suppose that you are maybe trained to see. He was always quite respectful of women, to my understanding. I've never heard him speak about women in derogatory ways. We work with a lot of younger girls as well and um, he was always just quiet, I suppose, but you see other people sometimes being rude or making sly jokes. I'd never seen that the whole time. Yeah, we definitely worked very, very closely in the lead up and never had any... I never had any idea what I was dealing with. Michael was a man whose professional persona didn't match who he was as a partner. People like Laura, who've been in violent relationships, explain that their abusers were outwardly charming. That charm is how they get close enough to people to hurt them, and also how they ensure that their partner isn't believed if they do speak out. In 1979, psychologist Lenore Walker came up with a theory known as the cycle of abuse. Walker recognised that violence and abuse often occur after a period of calm known as the honeymoon phase. During this phase, abusers use things like affection, gifts or promises, seemingly thoughtful actions that later serve as a means of control. There was this man that was doting on me, like sending me text messages all the time, talking to me for hours, very teenage... I don't know, 90s romantic comedy, like, you'd be up all hours on the phone talking. At first it started out with just general support, I suppose. 
it sort of filled it felt amazing he paid attention to the little things that i said i um, said oh i'd like this makeup set or something just an off-site comment i was oh i like that I always wanted one of them and you were just talking in a group of people and magically it arrive and little things like that he was very very kind very very generous with giving gifts i suppose wouldn't let me even purchase a cup of coffee this might sound like harmless behavior behavior that's characteristic of a person falling deeply suddenly in love but michael was using a common highly potent tactic called love bombing this is where an abuser overwhelms their partner with attention and affection. It means that down the track, they can point to those intense declarations of love as evidence that they aren't abusive, that they couldn't possibly mean to hurt or control. In Laura's case, all of Michael's early chivalry and attention was intoxicating, and then it became confusing and then ominous. Laura still remembers the first time that Michael yelled at her, seemingly for no reason. They'd been dating for a few weeks. Their fights became more frequent. Michael yelled and swore at Laura over nothing and over everything. There was no logic to Michael's rage. The goalposts were constantly changing. You're in a relationship with somebody, you're sort of living with somebody. You need to make things work. But it's like okay, you've adjusted this, but I'm going to find something else the next day to criticise you about. You're walking around so disorientated, like walking on eggshells, like I don't know what's going to set him off today that I'm going to do not knowing. It's not like you can't talk about a certain subject. It's it's a sensitive subject that you have to stay away from. And it's sort of like, why are you yelling at me over this? I'm just asking you to pass me something, like calm down. When Laura worries about the state of the relationship, Michael insists that this is normal, that all couples fight. What's really happening is that Michael is gaslighting Laura. He's making her question her own reality. The term gaslighting comes from a 1938 stage play called Gaslight. In the play, a husband attempts to drive his wife crazy by dimming and brightening the gas-powered lights in their home and then denying that the light has changed whenever his wife questions it. He said, I wasn't any liquor. He said, I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. A survey conducted by the National Domestic Violence Hotline in 2014 asked 2,500 callers about their experiences of coercion, all adult women who'd experienced domestic violence. In response to the question, do you think your partner or ex-partner has ever deliberately done things to make you feel like you're going crazy or losing your mind? 73.8% answered yes. A lot of couples who have, in general, a successful relationship and a good connection and see themselves as on solid ground can still behave very badly when they fight. I think the difference is that those things are very limited and they are repaired. 
in an abusive relationship, they're often one component of a much broader range of things. So, in fact, when there is name-calling or dismissing someone's opinion or ridiculing the person, it's part of a much broader and more pervasive pattern where that person really does feel dismissed, ridiculed and treated with contempt in the relationship. You just heard from Relationships Australia New South Wales CEO Elizabeth Shaw. She says that fights are about context. An angry exchange of words can be just an argument. The ordinary to and fro of a pair of people who live together and love each other. Or it can be part of a pattern of abuse. An important part of Elizabeth's job is helping people figure out how to tell the difference. First of all, trust your own judgment that if there's something that you feel is deeply upsetting and eroding to you, then take it seriously. Secondly, it's often measured by what happens when you bring it up. If you're scared to bring it up or you bring it up and again you get another serve of, oh, you're too sensitive or, you know, ridicule or dismissing or a quick apology, but in fact absolutely no change because the person really doesn't seem to care enough how hurt you were by the behaviour, then that in itself is a sort of confirmation that there is a pattern which is not okay. A study by the Australian Institute of Criminology looked at the characteristics of violence and abuse for Australian women who'd recently experienced coercive control. The most frequently reported behaviours were jealousy and suspicion of friends, constant insults monitoring of movements and financial abuse. Domestic abuse and violence can happen to anyone, but it is, at its core, fundamentally gendered. The federal government's fourth national action plan to reduce violence against women and their children notes that both men and women can perpetrate or experience violence, but that overwhelmingly, male perpetrators abusing female victims is the most common form of family violence. The Australian Bureau of Statistics has also found that 95% of all violence is carried out by a male perpetrator. That context is important to keep in mind when talking about survivors like Laura. Whenever Laura tried to talk about Michael's behaviour with him, he'd either get angrier still or punish her with silence like days and days of silence. And that had possible ramifications for Laura's professional life too. Not only was Michael her partner, he was also her boss. Michael had the power to decide how much and whether Laura got paid, what her job looked like, and whether or not she even had one to go to. Financial abuse, which is um, a little bit of a kind of unsung epidemic in this country, leaves many people in very poor financial condition. It's obviously very often accompanied by episodes of domestic violence uh, can sometimes either precede domestic violence or be part of the violence control inflicted on uh, victims. That was Sean Lewis. She's a group executive at Commonwealth Bank. She's also heavily involved in the bank's program to address financial abuse, which is called Next Chapter. Financial abuse is prevalent in the majority of domestic violence cases, and ComBank has been working in this space since 2015. In 2020, they launched the Next Chapter program to expand the support that they're providing to those impacted by this terrible issue. 
Through Next Chapter, Combank is helping victim survivors to regain their long-term financial independence. We've been involved in the area of kind of financial abuse or and domestic and fi- family violence since about 2015. What we discovered as we worked with, with lots of experts in this field is that actually long-term recovery is a harder area to get consistent support in than the immediate emergency situation. Very often you emerge from financially abusive relationships with bad credit history, very little money, no assets, the need to go to court to kind of protect children or recover assets. All of that is a very difficult journey to manage on your own, particularly if you're recovering from the the trauma of violence. And Michael wasn't just a threat to Laura's financial safety. He was a threat to her emotional and her physical safety as well. It started out probably maybe just pump like the anger on like the fist on the table and then it became throwing things near me not directly at me and then as the relationship came close to the end if there were things that were like i've been hit with things that he didn't actually throw it at my face but he's so, so so close to me that i've actually got hit as like a bounce back in one of his fits of rage at this stage in laura's timeline she's spending most of her free time with michael they're not living together, but they work together every day. I've never known somebody's watch somebody's body language so intimately. You can tell with the change. He had this thing where he used to grind his teeth and he'd be sitting there very, very still. And if nobody else would notice, but I could sit there and be sitting next to him in, in a meeting and he, he'd be twitching. Like the side of his temple will be twitching because he's grinding his teeth so much. That's one of the signs I really noticed that I'm about to cop it. Like, and, you, and you'd avoid him like the play because that's what's about to hit or like the clenching of the hands that I'm like, he's about to blow. You can watch it on the steering wheel. Michael has completely hijacked Laura's perception of her own situation. She wonders if she's crazy, just like he says she is. In the meantime, Laura's colleagues and friends have no idea that any of this is going on. My name's Kim. I am a friend of Laura's. I've known her for a few years, but I also knew her perpetrator. I met both of them because I worked with them both. And it was only after Laura disclosed her abuse that we became really close. And the reason for that was that everyone else that we worked with either wouldn't take a side and said they didn't want to get involved or they sided with her perpetrator. And in the end, we became really close because I was sort of the only one out of that that large group of people who would actually talk to her and take a stand and who actually believed her and was willing to say that I didn't think what was happening was acceptable. I think back and he really had us all fooled. Fooling people into thinking you're a nice guy can be advantageous for an abuser. So when Laura finally felt scared and brave enough to tell people what she was going through, most of her circle, her friends and family, chose to stay out of it. I was with one of our mutual friends and I was standing there, she was on the left and I was on the right, and um, I was talking to her going, I'm really not okay I can't deal with the anger anymore. I I can't even function. I'm so distraught, like I'm sleep deprived and he's fine. Nobody wanted to get involved. Nobody, I like you both. I don't want to pick sides. And anytime I tried to sort of 
say what was really going on. I just found like, well, he says that he loves you so much, like the love of his life. I hadn't spoken to Laura for a few months. I actually called her just to check in and she happened to be at the very start of this, having just called up 1-800-RESPECT and having blocked him off everything. And it just so happened that I called her at the start of this and she was terrified. She was so scared and she didn't know what to do because she did love him, but she was so afraid of how angry he got. Too many people still believe that domestic abuse occurs because of individual stress or anger management issues. In fact, one in five Australians believe that domestic violence is a normal reaction to stress and that sometimes a woman can make a man so angry that he hits her without meaning to. And I remember him yelling so furiously in my face and punching the wall next to my head. He's like, you're and he's just so close to my face that it wasn't that he was just yelling. It was, he was like within an inch of my face, like yelling down at me. And the saliva from the back of his throat was coming onto my face as he was yelling. And I remember I was had both of my hands up begging him to stop and to calm down. I'm like, and I remember I'm like, it was like he was in a different state. And I, I was like, I was trying to calm. I, all I remember saying is with my hands up going, please, I love you. I love you. Calm down. I love you. It's me. Calm down. And looking up at his eyes, this is one of the things that, that chills me to my bone to this day. His pupils were so dilated that his eyes turned black and he's punching the wall next to my head. And all I thought at that time is this man, he's going to hurt me. He's really going to hurt me. And it's like right next to my face, he's punched like, and I could feel the wind from his hand. And like, I've got my hands up and I'm like, he's like, he's gonna, he's gonna hurt me. During another incident of abuse, Laura threw herself out of a moving car because Michael was speeding. She'd begged him to slow down, but Michael only put his foot down on the accelerator harder. Laura hid from him in bushland without a phone for hours. Laura and Michael's relationship had become dangerous. Laura describes how Michael would test her to see and to prove just how much power this man had. During this phase of their relationship, Michael never did something so unambiguous as to punch her in the face or kick her in the ribs. He made Laura feel unsafe without leaving a mark. Lula Dembele is a survivor advocate who works in violence prevention advocacy. She talks about the perceived credibility of survivors who speak out when their abuse is less obvious. Perpetrators go for a power differential. They want to know that I can manipulate this person in this situation. I will be seen as credible. They will be seen as not credible. According to the New South Wales Domestic Violence Death Review Team, Two out of three women killed by their current or former partner had separated in the last three months. The time before or immediately after a breakup is when violence most often increases. In relationships where there's previously been no physical violence, this is when violence tends to occur for the first time. Laura decided to leave Michael, which is a brave but risky choice 
for anyone in an abusive relationship. Michael didn't take the news well. Laura was so afraid of Michael's behaviour that she also got a new job, but none of this stopped him. Michael messaged her new workplace. He would call her names and belittle her. Then he escalated. He would show up at her new work. He never came in, but sat outside in his car watching her. He also turned up at Laura's house unannounced and uninvited. He trespassed on her property. He prowled around her garden in the dark. Michael even broke into Laura's home when she was out and moved around or stole her belongings. He filmed her through the blinds at her place and then he sent that footage to his mates. Laura believes that Michael may have even laid out poison for her pets in the one place that wasn't covered by security cameras. I think it was about seven o'clock at night and I remember noticing that my blinds were ajar and I was like, that's just an annoying thing. And I was just about to like get sort of have a shower for the night, that sort of stuff get, get settled. And I just randomly got up and looked, it went to adjust it. And as I adjusted it, I seen like this flash of light and him, he was running through my front yard. My, my front yard is gated through my front yard and running across my yard. And I remember like, you don't expect that. I remember running around to my front door and I'm like, what the f***? He was screaming at me, accusing me of cheating on him. And I gave him multiple chances to leave. I, I begged him to leave. I don't like, I've never been in trouble with the police. I've never had any issues. Like, I didn't want to call the police. Emergency police fire ambulance. What the f***? What are you doing? Look at what you doing. You are looking through my window because I know with my sure heart that I have never cheated on you. Laura called the National Domestic Violence Hotline 1-800-RESPECT for advice. She says that call may have saved her life. Laura described what had been happening and she was told to get to a refuge urgently. They believed that Laura's life may be in immediate danger. We know and the research shows that Michael's pattern of stalking, intimidating, trespassing, threatening and the attempts to kill animals can be precursors to homicide. One study from 1999 found that stalking is a factor in 85% of attempted homicides of women. Another study from 2003 found that women whose partners threatened to murder them are 15 times more likely to be killed than other women experiencing abuse. As a community, we often shake off these kinds of behaviours as being not serious enough to warrant action. But the data is telling us the opposite. In reality, these are often deadly warning signs. We know when we look at things through a coercive control lens that it focuses us on a pattern 
of abuse. It encourages us not to think about domestic and family violence as single, isolated experiences of abuse because that's not how women experience it. They experience it as a pattern of harm that may impact their every day, may only manifest in a physical violent incident once a week, once a month or never, but they walk on eggshells every day and their liberty, their confidence, their well-being is impacted by that pattern of abuse. That was Dr Kate Fitzgibbon, who's the director of the Monash Gender and Family Violence Prevention Centre. Unfortunately, without the right systems and support in place, we don't often actually apply this knowledge to identify potential killers and to adequately protect the victims they target. In Laura's case, thankfully, there was this intervention. For Laura's own safety, she was taken to a hotel and then to an undisclosed address. The escalation of her case by support services was what made Laura realise just how much danger she was in. And there's whiplash that comes from such an urgent discovery for Laura and for other survivors. So the time when she left was really confusing. It was just the most bizarre series of events in that on the one side we have this person doing a lot to try and convince people that he would never behave like this and on the other hand we have a woman who's gone to a refuge and they have assessed that her situation is so serious that she needs to be put into protection hours away from her home. I still have no idea where she was. We actually had a code word. Our code word was the word that if she ever texted or called to me, it meant he's here and you need to call the police. She and I thought that she was going to die and we prepared for it. I was ready to get the call that she had been murdered. And uh, we we got ready for that. We really thought she was going to die because that's what you know, the 1-800-RESPECTS and the counsellors and the relationship counsellors were telling her. They went to a relationship counsellor together and her counsellor privately later told her, I don't do this, but I need to warn you, you need to leave, this man is going to kill you. How, how bad can it be if your relationship counsellor who has seen both of you is willing to tell you that she thinks you are going to die? There's a shocking contrast here. Michael is worried about how he's coming across on Facebook while Laura is in hiding to stay alive. He's feeding off the consolation and kindness of his friends while she feels cut off and alone, disconnected from her community. Laura organises to have security specialists safeguard her home. In a confidential report cited by the makers of this podcast, they assessed her chance of being killed by Michael as extremely high. Laura now sleeps with a bucket of water by her bed. She's been warned that Michael could try and burn down her house while she sleeps. Laura took out an apprehended violence order against Michael. There were plenty of times where she could have called the police or laid charges, but she didn't. Laura feared that if she did either of those things, the abuse would intensify and he would blame her because he was in trouble. And every time, that is exactly what happened. What Laura went through during the relationship ticks all of the boxes for what we call coercive control. Coercive control is a term that was popularised in the early 2000s, but most Australians only started hearing it after February 2020, 
when one man's crime would send shockwaves through the entire country. It was an act of evil that shocked the nation. Hannah Clark and her three children, Aaliyah, Layana and Trey, were ambushed by her estranged husband on the morning school run in suburban Brisbane. They were doused in petrol and set alight. I think that the thing that really shook Australia, I think, in terms of looking at what was happening here, is that even though we talk about everyone can experience domestic violence and intimate partner violence, we don't really think about it in those terms. We always think it's someone else in another in another neighbourhood, in another household, not something that could happen to me or my friends or my family members. And I think the thing that really shook Australia was that Hannah Clark looked like so many other women in Australia and she presented so well on social media and she seemed to have the ideal lifestyle. You know, she was incredibly accomplished. She was very loving, friendly. Her kids and her had a really positive relationship. And also her partner presented really well through social media and things like that. So they seem to have a really idyllic and positive relationship. That's Dr Hayley Boxall speaking there, a research manager at the Australian Institute of Criminology who works in the area of violence against women and children. She's also worked as a victim support liaison officer and she specialises in coercive control. The case Dr Boxer was speaking about, which she believes got people in Australia talking about coercive control, was the killing of Hannah Clark and her children, six-year-old Aaliyah, four-year-old Leana and three-year-old Trey. A man named Rowan Baxter, Hannah's estranged husband and father to her children, set fire to the car they were all in and then killed himself. Dr Boxall says that understanding the tools and tactics used by perpetrators is critical to ending their choice to use violence. But what we saw after the murder was that the friends and family members came out and said, well, actually, he was quite controlling of her. He was never physically violent towards her, but he would monitor what she was wearing and how much she weighed and what she was doing on social media. I didn't see the red flags. I, I wasn't there to help my baby. Little things. He would sulk and not speak for days. He would threaten to kill himself, go through her phone, through her handbag. Because coercive control can be invisible for so many outsiders. So I think that really started a really important conversation in Australia of people going, well, if I wouldn't have been able to tell that Hannah Clark was experiencing this, what else am I missing? Australia needs to have a national conversation about coercive control earlier. As ordinary members of the community, as friends and neighbours, we must be better educated on the warning signs and precursors to potentially fatal violence. When we think about domestic violence, we still immediately think about physical forms of abuse. We still think about bruises. We still think about cuts, abrasions. We still think about knives and guns and beatings and things like that. So even though we have progressed quite a lot in terms of how we think about and talk about domestic violence, when we even look at the media campaigns, it, there is still that image of a woman cowering in the corner with a bruise on her face. And that's the predominant narrative that we're kind of seeing. Dr Haley Boxall says that women are significantly less likely to report non-physical forms of abuse. Often, they don't even know how to identify the abuse they're enduring, which makes reaching out for help from the police or even from loved ones hugely difficult. But coercive control 
is hard to prove. And to make things more complicated, experts still don't agree on exactly what coercive control even means. Even after 40 years of research, there is no really unitary one definition of coercive control which really satisfies everyone. And the thing that I kind of come back to is that the only way in which I've been able to really definitively kind of get at a definition of coercive control is by asking the women themselves about the impact of those behaviours on them. And if they talk about feeling like they have a lack of autonomy, if they feel like they have an inability to make decisions for themselves, whether they feel claustrophobic within their relationships, then we kind of go, it sounds like you're experiencing coercive control. Listening to people who've survived and seen abuse up close can help us to understand this very complex problem. Hayley has done a lot of that in her line of work, as have researchers based in Scotland who are having an incredible impact in that country. They're showing that change is possible, that protecting victims of violence is possible. Scotland criminalised coercive control in 2019 and their laws are broadly considered the gold standard. We spoke to the Chief Executive of Scottish Women's Aid, Dr Marsha Scott, via Zoom from Edinburgh. Dr Scott oversees a network of 30 local women's aid groups, all of which provide vital services to women and children and work hard to end domestic violence. What the law does is it defines the effects of the behaviour as the critical element that create a crime. And this is where I think this piece of legislation starts to move into brilliant, which is that it it reflects the words of women and children who were living with domestic abuse at the time the law was written or were very recent survivors of it. It talks about autonomy. It talks about freedom. It talks about fear. It talks about the things that in coercive and controlling relationships are the things that, that create the impact or the effect of the behavior. And one of the things that prosecutors told me here is that this is such a better tool for taking domestic abuse into courtrooms because before all they could talk about was about whether there was a punch or there was a shove or there was, you know, some kind of verbal abuse between the hours of 9 and 10 o'clock on Saturday, right? Now they can lead evidence about the entire relationship. And that is what you need to understand coercive control and domestic abuse. And that is what you've always needed. Scotland's approach has been lauded as world-leading. However, experts in Australia have warned that such laws would need to be adapted for our context. Marsha agrees. The way the criminal justice system in Australia responds to men and women of colour is different and critical to the development of this law, I think. What do we think about, do we think that implementation of a new domestic abuse law like this is going to be implemented in Australia in a way that puts women of colour in more danger? The answer to that is emphatically yes, unless you plan for it not to be that way. Another thing that stopped Laura from taking action earlier was feeling unsure about what she would tell police. Laura had never been directly hit and she felt a kind of imposter syndrome. One of the first questions that people ask you is like, 
yeah, but did he hit you? And I felt like I didn't deserve to be there. Now I understand a lot more about the physical forms of violence. It doesn't actually mean that you need to be punched in the face, but I've been held and not been able to move. I've been grabbed by my wrist and haven't been able to move and all these sort of things. Certainly as part of other research that I've done where I've spoken to women who have experienced exclusively non-physical forms of abuse, they talk about, I wish he would just punch me. I wish he would just hit me so that I would actually be able to name this for what it feels like, which is abusive behaviours. Violence is about so much more than cuts and bruises. The important point is, would a reasonable person, when hearing that this, these were features of a relationship in an ongoing manner, assume that the effects would be to make somebody dependent, to reduce their autonomy, to you know, create fear, to manage their everyday lives, to do all of the things that women and children have been telling us for decades are the things that are most harmful. Do we think any person could hear that list of things that Laura's perpetrator put her through and conceivably believe that they were anything other than a pattern of abuse? So when we recognise this complex web of activity as a form of violence, how do we make change happen to keep victim survivors and their children safe from more covert and difficult to pinpoint forms of abuse and violence? What we're asking is a massive social change because the social change that that has to happen for this law to work, right, is for people to be willing to, to name the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is women's inequality and all of our societies failing to accord children their human rights. Relationships Australia boss Elizabeth Shaw agrees. In terms of domestic inequity, you often do see a lot of those gender stereotypes in these sorts of relationships. But I think it is really important that we also understand that violence and abuse certainly is attached to attitudes about privilege and relationships and roles and entitlement and that that can play out even when there are elements in the relationship that look equitable. So, for example, you might have a man who's a hugely contributing father, does half the housework and is incredibly abusive. So you can have these mixed experiences too or where the woman has the better job and the greater income. So it's important that we don't look for sort of superficial understandings about power and privilege too. But certainly it is the most, you know, common dynamic where the man does have more more access and privilege than not. Dr Haley Boxall says that we need to remember that while violence can happen to anybody, that doesn't mean domestic violence happens to all communities at the same rate or in the same way. Risk is not evenly distributed across the community. First Nations women are more likely to experience coercive control than non-Indigenous women. Women with a disability are more likely to experience coercive control when compared with women who don't have a disability. Women who are younger are more likely to experience coercive control. But these are also the groups that we know who are more likely to experience any form of intimate partner violence generally. Just so you know... Laura's doing really well. She's in a happy, healthy relationship with a man who treats her well. Laura's got a new job and she's got good friends around her. And she's made the remarkable decision to help other women out of abusive relationships. Laura is living proof that recovery, survival and a loving, flourishing life 
is possible. Survivors of family violence are incredibly resilient. And while no survivor ever owes their story to anyone, we're so grateful when they choose to share it. It's that age-old saying you can't just leave. But for people to actually listen to victim survivors and understand how they get there, why they've got there, and how to actually help them. I'm saying as somebody who has gone through, there are so many stories out there, and I've met so many people since, nobody goes through this process for no reason. Nobody does. No woman will sit there and put herself publicly out there and through a court battle just because she had a, a bad fight with a partner or she's having a bad day. It is so traumatising. You lose the core of who you are. <laughs> it has to be a societal change and people start, men and women have to start listening to the victims and talking about it. Stop hiding behind closed doors. Stop forcing women to hide behind closed doors. And if somebody comes up to you and says that things aren't okay, I need help actually helping and listening to them and seeing how you can help instead of just walking away because it's a bit too hard. Well, I liked you both. I don't want to get involved. Like, I'm lucky I got out, but how many women don't? Next week on There's No Place Like Home, we'll meet Geraldine Bilston. Geraldine shares her story of surviving physical and emotional abuse and how that abuse changed her forever. Geraldine will help us to confront one of the most complex policy questions. Should Australia move to criminalise coercive control, as some states already have? And if we do that, what should those laws look like? The truth for me is I wasn't left with a lifelong physical injury, but the way that his psychological abuse had destroyed my brain and his emotional abuse had broken my heart. And those are the things that are irreparable and they take so long to push against, to try to fix. See you then. There's No Place Like Home is a Future Women podcast in collaboration with our proud partner, Commonwealth Bank, who are committed to helping end financial abuse through ComBank Next Chapter. No matter who you bank with, if you are worried about your finances because of domestic and family violence, you can contact ComBank's Next Chapter team on 1800 222 387 within Australia or visit combank.com.au slash nextchapter. If you need help or advice, please check the show notes for phone numbers for confidential support. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review It will help these important stories to reach more people's ears. For more information about There's No Place Like Home or to join the movement, please head to futurewomen.com. This episode was produced by Jamila Rizvi, Sally Spicer, Tarang Chawla, Fleur Bitcon, Ella Jackson, Ruby Leigh Gatfield, India Bailey and Kate Lever. Editing by Bad Producer Productions. Artwork by Patty Andrews.